Let's pray together. God, thank you for these great promises. Thank you that um, even though many of us don't experience the things that you speak of, they can be true. Um, they can be true because we, we choose to put our faith in you and you are true to your promises. Um, so make that reality for us um, evident on our hearts, even as we open your word today and, and meditate on these great promises. Uh, would, you, would you change our hearts, God, to um, just go toward you and receive from you and shape us to be people who display you to those around us, your joy and the hope that you have for us. So thank you for the time we have now to rest in your word and to learn as we do so. Praying in Christ's name we all say, amen. Uh, Well, recently um, I came across an article entitled uh, How to Be a More Patient Person, which caught my attention because if you're like me, you're not a very patient person. Um, I recently bought a new bike. It's a custom bike and um, from this small company down in Portland. And the reason I bought it from this company is they advertise quote-unquote, no waiting lists. And so for custom bike manufacturers, this is kind of a thing because you often end up waiting over a year to get your bike. Um, and so this company doesn't have a list like that. They say about 8 to 12 weeks from beginning to end. And it's been 13-plus weeks now. So, <clears throat> And I'm a little frustrated. Actually, in an email exchange I had with their owner and their builder this week, I was asking, kind of, can I get a date? And I, you know, I need the bike. I have some plans for it this month. And uh, they're like, hey, sorry for the delay. We're working on it. We have lots of balls in the air. Thanks for your patience. Which I nearly, I nearly threw my computer out the window at that point. Um, I was so frustrated. Like, don't you love when people say thanks for your patience? It's sort of like saying, it's a nice way of saying stop bugging me, right? If you've ever done that, I know I have. So I read this article and I was immediately intrigued because I would love to be a more patient person. I would just love to be, like, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit, I would love to have that fruit, especially when it feels like my patience is so shallow, like over a bike, really, Jack? And so um, in the article, the authors discuss a study that appeared in the Journal of Positive Psychology in 2012, which revealed that patience is a modifiable personality trait. So in other words, you you can practice patience and cultivate it, and you can grow in your ability to be more patient. And so they go to list ways you can do this, how to practice patience. Here's a couple just for you, in case you're interested. Uh, number one, you can, you can grow in your patience by identifying your triggers. So what causes you to feel impatient and sort of to explode? And how might you avoid putting yourself in those situations? Um, another one is sort of is to interrupt the cycle and evaluate the risk. For example, if being stuck in traffic causes a flood of impatient emotion and angry emotion to, to come in, they see to interrupt that time with a sort of mantra. Remind yourself, I'm not in a hurry. I'm not in a hurry. I'm not in a hurry, even though you might feel like you're in a hurry. And then ask yourself this really important question, is this a life or death situation? Is it a life or death situation? The question that they can say can almost always be answered, no. And that that helps interrupt that cycle and then allows you to become more patient. A third way uh, that's germane to our study this morning is to reframe and connect your experience to a larger story. So for example, if you're struggling with one of your kids, you're raising children, you don't feel successful. They're triggering you left and right, just pushing all your buttons, like any of you. And so the research would say, pause and think about the big picture. 
Why is being a parent so important in our world? What does that mean for you in your life? Why is that a gift and a joy? And what does it mean to your child to have a parent or two? Um, who is this person you've given birth to? Think about them. You looked at them when they were born and they had original beauty. <laughs> they, could, they could do no harm, right? Think about that child who you're equipping to live in the world. Um, connect with that. And they say in the study, you will become more patient. You just will. And uh, now you say, great, that's awesome parenting advice, awesome driving advice. What does that have to do with Isaiah? Well, Isaiah, interestingly, is a story set in a time of waiting uh, where patience, the patience of Israel is being deeply tested. So the backdrop of Isaiah is the 70 years of, of exile that Israel experienced in the, the nation of Babylon, the country of Babylon, under the vicious reign of, of Sennacherib. You can read all about it in 2 Kings. And uh, the essential meaning of which, as Eugene Peterson writes in one place, is that you're separated from home, and the place you're in isn't the place you want to be. The people there aren't the people you want to be with. Uh, it it kind of sounds like Thanksgiving a little bit, actually. Um, I'm kidding. So, uh, they, so their patience is being tried, and, and, and they're with their captors. Their captors are trying their patience. Their, their patience with God is being tried. They're praying daily, God, we want to be home. And so here's the deal. It's not just a story set in that context, uh, you know, you know a, a pregnant and difficult time of waiting to return from exile to Israel. Um, it's also a story about how to wait well. Remember that thing I just said about um, connecting with the larger story and how that teaches us to grow in our patience. In other words, Isaiah 35, if you read it, and we did, is where we're going to find ourselves today, is really about waiting well by connecting with God's larger story. That's what it's all about. So uh, what God does with us in Isaiah 35 is he takes his, his people in their time, his people in our time, and just says, connect with the greater story and with my activity and my presence in your lives and in the world, and you will grow in your ability to wait for me to return. So today I want to do just that. I want to just connect with the bigger story that God's trying to tell us in Isaiah 35 by exploring three promises he has here, okay? And they'll be in your outline, and they'll teach us, I think, how to wait well, how to, during Advent and then beyond Advent, how to be patient people, okay? So we're going to look at the promise of renewal, the promise of restoration, and the promise of return, okay? And then we'll come together at the table today to celebrate communion, all right? So first, uh, the promise of renewal in verses 1 and 2. I'll read these again. It says, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They'll see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. So this is the promise of renewal. And here's what I mean by that. The image here of Lebanon and Carmel and Sharon, these are uniquely fertile regions in the ancient Near East. In contrast to the desert, the parched land, and the wilderness, which are sort of the common way you'd think of the ancient Near East as, you know, as sort of a dry place. And to be sure, the, the Middle Eastern landscape, if you've been there, how many have been to like Israel and the, the ancient Near East? Some of you, not the ancient Near East. You're not that old, right? So, um, but you've been there. So uh, it's an area where there's very little rainfall and there's like minimal crop. Like it's just not like our experience here. It's probably a little more like Eastern Washington or even worse probably. So there's no trees, like the trees we know them. And so it's a very tough and austere land, which is why it's shepherding land, because sheep can apparently survive in that kind of land. But here's the key. Each spring, 
Uh, the desert blossoms there, so I'm told I haven't been, but in grass and wildflowers and these seasonal rainfalls, which is the image that Isaiah is casting for us. Isaiah is saying it's, it's this image of a desert that's going to burst into bloom. That's the phrase Isaiah uses. The desert will, desert will burst into bloom. And so we're talking about real change, real renewal of the world, the physical world in which we live. A day when God's presence will be so strongly felt and experienced that the entire natural world around us, the, the earth we're walking on, will not be a desert anymore. Um, and though this is kind of a disconnect from the Pacific Northwest, it can often feel to us like a desert, uh, the world we walk on. And of course, this is a, an echo of what God says later in Revelation that we read, Behold, I'm making all things new. Uh, and and, and also, uh, that's something that Isaiah actually says in Isaiah 43. He says, I'm doing a new thing. And we're going to talk about that later in the series. I'm making streams in the wilderness. So a quick aside. As you know, uh, the New Testament was written in Greek. And the Old Testament has a Greek version called the Septuagint. And I've always been partial to Greek over Hebrew because I'm left-handed. So reading from left to right is easier than right to left. Any of you with me? No, no. So anyway, that's a joke. But... Um, so in Greek, the, the Hebrews is hard for me. So I always go to Greek. And in Greek, which Isaiah 43, Revelation 21, there's, there's two words for new or newness. There's the word kainos and neos. So I'm making all things new. And God's casting a vision of newness for us in Isaiah 35. Kainos and neos. So the word neos means that something's just recently appeared. It's, um, it means that you're young. This is where we get the word neophyte from, or the word neologism, a new word. Uh, the word kainos also a Greek word for new, but it's not talking about the age of something. It's talking about its quality. And so uh, it's, it's not how long an object's been around, but the quality of the newness. So it's brightness, it's beauty, it's vividness, it's strength despite its age. Now here's the deal. Revelation 21, Isaiah 43, and God's kind of talking about this in Isaiah 35, is kainos, newness. That's actually the word that God uses in those places. So God's saying there can be a kainos, without a neos. There can be a newness, even though it's old. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home and tell your friends, this is what you heard this morning, that we can have a kainos without a neos. And everybody is going to say, what are you talking about? And that's not just because you're watching the Seahawks and you're using fancy, obscure Greek words, but because we don't have categories for this in our world right now. Um, This is absolutely revolutionary, if you think about it. We don't have a category for kainos without neos. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, We don't have things, we say, oh yeah, you get better with age. Like some people are just like fine wine and aged cheese, right? Some, like we say that. But generally, we know things decay. Like erosion happens, the environment around us is under incredible pressure and strain due to overpopulation and mistreatment, mismanagement. And then we look at our lives and we go, man, we look in the mirror, <laughs> lie in bed at night, we're alone with our own thoughts, and we're thinking the same old thoughts, same things we've always thought. Things are falling apart. Our lives are falling apart. Our confidence in the future and our hopes just fall apart. In our world, something has to be neos to be kind. It has to be new to be new. It can't be old to be new. Something has to be young to be new. This is why we're always buying the next new gadget. This is why, because even though our, our old gadgets technically work, your old iPhone before you got the 10 or the X or whatever, technically worked, it's no longer neos. It's no longer new to your senses. It's 
not shiny anymore. It's got some scrapes on it. Your screen's cracked. It's dull. It's old. So you feel like you need to get a new one. And this is actually an incredibly important word for us during Christmas, actually. And I'm not being silly right now. Because, see, the Bible it blows up this category for us. It says things can be new. There can be beauty in the world, in your life, and in creation, even though it's old. It can be. I'm making all things new. That's what God says, kainos. In God, in God, things get newer and newer and newer, even though they're as ancient as you can imagine, and, uh, which is something I think we just have a hard time understanding. How can things get newer and newer and newer with age? And what I think this means is when God declares there's a promised newness in the universe, both the earth as well as all of its creatures, us, his people, it, it means that God is, is offering a different kind of quality to us of newness. It's, it's, a, it's on a different plane. It's not the same way we think of things. It's a different category. So one of the interesting places in one of my favorite books that talks about this really explicitly is in uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. It's in the, the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring. It's in this place where Frodo and the Hobbits come into one of these old forests in Middle Earth. And it's actually in the Elven lands called Lothlorien. And um, they walk out into this. It's untouched by evil. And, and Tolkien's actually a Christian. And he's trying to write a myth about both Christianity and for his part of the world, uh, you know, Scotland, England. And he's trying to give us a picture, I think, of what Isaiah is describing, what Revelation is describing. So here's what Col- Tolkien says. They walk out, these hobbits walk out into this clearing in this forest. And here's a quote. It says that the others cast themselves down on the fragrant grass, but Frodo stood a while, lost in wonder. It seemed to him that he'd stepped through a high window and looked out onto a vanished world. A light was upon it, for which his language had no name. All he saw were shapely, all the things he saw were shapely, but seemed to be once clear-cut as if they'd been first conceived and drawn at the uncovering of his eyes, and ancient as if they endured forever. In winter here, no heart could mourn, for summer or for spring. No blemish or sickness or deformity could be seen in anything that grew upon the earth. On the land of Lothlorien, there was no stain. And I think that's just a beautiful way of saying what God's trying to say, that there's a glory and a beauty and an immensity and an infinity to the new heavens and the new earth, the place that God is bringing to us, a place where colors and shapes and objects created things will be as if we just discovered them for the first time. We've, they, they've, they've, but they've been as ancient as if they've endured forever. And it's a new category. We cannot imagine this for ourselves. And this is what Jesus talks about himself in Matthew 19 when he says that he comes to bring the restoration of all things. This is what um, Psalm 96 talks about in that great place where it says, let, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the, the sea resound and all that's in it, let all the trees in the forest sing for joy, let the creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to set everything right on earth. This is what God does. And so Isaiah, Revelation, Psalms are just ways of expressing the freedom that creation and us as created beings will experience under the presence and the rule and the reign of Christ. This is what Advent is about. So if you remember a couple weeks ago, we were talking about Romans 8. We talked a bit about the fact that creation is subject to futility and frustration and decay. Do you remember that? Romans 8, 22. And yet we also heard that despite the experience of frustration— the creation groaning, the creation will be liberated like the children of God someday, freed. We might even just say that creation will be kynosed, be given a freedom, a newness from its bondage to decay. 
um, just like we are, new bodies, new creatures. And what this means by way of application, when we see like wildfires in California, and, and some of you have you know, been there, lived there, have friends that are experiencing this, um, you see tsunamis in Japan or Indonesia, you see an earthquake in Haiti that kills hundreds of thousands of people, hurricanes on our continent. We don't need to despair. Um, we could lament and say, this is not how it should be, God. Uh, and we can ask, God, how are you calling us as stewards of creation, your image bearers, we're called to steward the earth. How, how can we care for this old decaying earth and present this present earth in a way that it can be all it should be? We can do that, but we don't need to despair um, and then lose our patience. Remember, we're talking about patience because the promise of renewal is, is before us. God has cast a vision of kainos, and we got to disconnect with that vision, the bigger story, and seek to live here today with that vision in mind. So there's nothing wrong with the desert. Remember, the desert's going to bloom. Nothing wrong with the desert, Isaiah says, that a little rain can't fix. Like, nothing wrong with a broken and flawed earth. It's broken, it's flawed. And your lives are broken and flawed that the Lord of creation cannot fix. I mean, there there are going to be days and weeks and months and years where nothing seems to be happening. But you know, the seed is in the ground. The rain is going to bring it to blossom. It's going to burst into bloom. That moment's going to come. And so that's the first promise we need to connect with is that the promise of, of renewal, it is, it is there for us. And we just need to connect with that and ask God to give us a vision that's greater than ours. That's the first thing. So the promise of renewal. Here's the second. Um, it's the promise of restoration, and it's in verses 5 and 6. It says, uh, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame will leap like deer, and the mute will shout for joy. <clears throat> so here's what this means. Every tragedy we experience um, will become a triumph. Every tragedy you experience will become a triumph. Every deficiency in your ability to see or hear or walk or speak will be healed by God's grace. Everything in your body that doesn't work um, will be made workable. It will. Everything in your souls, your souls, your, your seed, your mind, will, and emotions that's been just um, bent by shame, by abuse, by just living in a broken world, will, through the power of Christ's forgiveness and the presence of his mercy, become an instrument of peace. That's what's going to happen. So wholeness will be realized in every dimension of our lives. Mind, body, spirit, or body, soul, spirit, social, emotional, uh, relational. Every, it, this is the promise of complete restoration. But now listen, and this is really important. Um, Jesus takes up Isaiah 35 in his time. He actually quotes it. And and himself, by not healing all the blind and all the deaf and all those who cannot walk in his life, makes sure we don't misinterpret Isaiah 35 um, by merely spiritualizing it, turning it into some poetic figure of speech, um, symbolizing sort of defects and abnormalities and things. It's just metaphor to illustrate greater lessons. I actually have read commentaries on Isaiah 35, and a lot of evangelical commentators like to say, oh, It's just spiritual blindness. It's just spiritual deafness. We need to learn to hear God more spiritually. And I just say, well, that's good. But Jesus actually heals people. He actually unstops people's ears and opens their eyes literally. And I think by doing that, he's saying you cannot spiritualize this alone. We know that countless people have suffered in our lives, disability, affliction, disease. And so hear me. God did not intend for people to suffer this way. 
Um, God is not a masochist who delights in our suffering. He does not. Death, include everything, including everything that impairs us, is an intruder in God's world. God didn't invent blindness. God didn't invent cancer. He didn't create disease. He didn't create a world filled with death. If you go back to uh, the Garden of Eden, that's not the way things were. And, and so Isaiah 35 is describing what's going to happen when the world is restored back to the way God created it and, and declaring God's desire to heal today because Jesus heals. So the healing is really healing. That's what Isaiah 35 is saying. It's a gift from God by the presence of Christ in our lives today. Okay? But Jesus also, by not healing all the blind and all the deaf and all the lame, he makes sure we won't interpret it by, by secularizing this, by saying we can manufacture healing, right? We can make this happen. Um, this, is, this is the danger of the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, actually. Um, that, you know, if you just name it, you can claim it, you know? Just pray harder. Just have more faith. I mean, if you've been here, like I said, during our, these past weeks, quite the opposite for followers of Christ. In Romans, we are told that if you choose to really follow Christ, like you really go all in, both feet in, go into the deep end, you probably will begin suffering. Welcome to the party. Like, you're going to suffer pain, loss, heartbreak. Christianity is not a promise of a pain-free, perfect life. Um, and so faith in Christ means that you understand every hour of every day is but a word in a sentence, in a paragraph, in a much larger story. And, and you will only finally come to its complete conclusion in Christ, when Christ returns. As Paul says so beautifully in 1 Corinthians, now we see only in part, only then will we see fully. So healing is healing, but often it's only in part. Only in part. Things fall apart, like I said. So what? Like, what do I do with that? I mean, this tension between restoration now and, you know, later. Like, what do I do? How do I live faithfully today? Well, it's, fast, it's fascinating to me that that tension is in our, our propensity to over-spiritualize healing and then over-secularize it as well is actually lived out in the early church. In Acts chapter 3, like the first 10 verses of Acts 3, sometime go read this, there's this healing that happens by Peter and John, by a man lame from birth. That's what it says. And it's, it's told by Luke in the most matter-of-fact ways. It says that one day that Peter and John were just going up to the temple to, to pray. It was 3 in the afternoon. That's what Luke t- tells us. So like he gives it the time of day, and a man was there who was lame from birth. He couldn't walk. And, uh, and so he'd been carried to the temple every day to this gate called Beautiful. And he was put there, and he's asking for alms. So Peter and John are about to go in, and he asks them for money. And this, you can put yourself in this situation. You've been asked for money on the freeway, freeway on ramps. And Peter looks straight at him, and, and so does John, and says, hey, look at us. And he, maybe you try this sometime. So the man gives him his attention, and he says, we don't have any silver or gold. What we do have... I give you freely in the name of Jesus Christ. Get up and walk. And so they took him by the right hand. And it says instantly in in Acts 3, this man, his feet, his ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet. He began to walk. And he went with them into the temple, quote, walking, jumping, and praising God. Now, anyone, his life, you could say, burst into bloom, as Isaiah 35 says. Anyone who knew the Hebrew Scriptures... And that's pretty much everyone who read this story <laughs> knew that that's a quote from Isaiah 35, that the eyes of the blind will be open, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like deer. He's leaping like a deer. 
and so Acts, by way of Peter's encounter with this man and describing what's going to happen when God enters into our lives, is just saying that all over the Gospels, people leaping and shouting for joy and declaring God's joy because of God's presence in their lives, um, is pointing toward God's promise of restoration. I mean, have you ever noticed that? If you read the Gospels, that in the New Testament, whether it's the apostles there in Acts 3, or you go back to Jesus, his miracles, are just never naked displays of power. Jesus doesn't skywrite. Um, the disciples are not doing these magic sideshows like Harry Potter. And, you know, they heal. They're alleviating suffering. They liberate people from bondage. That's what they're doing. Always. That's all the healings. Read the healings in the Gospels. They're all liberation healings from bondage, physical, spiritual, and emotional bondage. Why is the question you should ask yourself. Why is healing always connected to human pain or suffering? And the reason is, is because it's pointing forward to this promise from Isaiah of renewal, to the end of history when God says, I will restore all things, creation and your life as well. I will make all things new. Make them as they were created to be. So as I said, these miracles, they show us that God's an enemy of suffering, an enemy of death, and someday, maybe not today, someday God's going to deal with it. He's going to deal with death. And if you're on his side, and if our church is on God's side, we're going to say to the enemy of God, which is death, no. We're going to say that to people in their life. It gives us incredible hope. This gives me incredible hope because in a vision for dealing with suffering, when I encounter it in your lives or the lives of the people around me, because like I said, healing's not mechanical. I can't walk up to you and say, I heal you. I mean, Peter and John did that. I've never been able to do that. <laughs> so I can't conjure that power up, but I can realize that it's possible. And so I can walk up to someone and I can say, God didn't create you for cancer. God didn't create you for addiction. God didn't create you for anxiety or shame. God didn't create you for bitterness. God didn't create you for cynicism. Those things are not of God. I know that because I read Scripture. And thus, I can stand in the power of Christ by the presence of the Spirit in, in your lives, and you can do this with each other, and say no to those things, and then you can say yes to God, yes to liberty, yes to wholeness, yes to complete restoration, uh, yes to freedom. I can say yes to that. So this is why we serve the broken here in Lake City. We're doing a community meal this afternoon. We serve the lost on the margins. We serve and care in this way, in the way of Jesus. We aren't merely just offering food. Uh, we're, off, we're not just giving sight to the blind. We're doing it in the way of Jesus, who always said to people, in addition to doing that, what did he say? Your sins are forgiven. And he asked the Pharisees, what's harder to do? Heal somebody or forgive their sins? And you know, liberty is always harder. It's always harder to really experience freedom. And God would have us be free people. And it's that kind of belief. When we believe for healing in that way, um, when, when Jesus busts through the traditional categories, that try and spiritualize healing and secularize it, when we say healing is about wholeness, total renewal, socially, emotional, spiritual, that we're walking in this promise that God gives us in Isaiah. Okay? And so that's what we can do. That's the second promise. There will be restoration. Here's the last one. It's a promise of return. It's in verses 8 to 10. I'll read those again. Very end of the passage, Isaiah 35. A highway will be there. It's called the way of holiness. And it will be for those who walk in the way. The unclean will not journey on it, nor wicked fools, 
no lion, no ravenous beast, but only the redeemed. And those who, God, those who the Lord has rescued will return. They'll enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. So highway will be there, which, will be, which means there will be return. This is the promise. And the key I want to focus in on here is this word return. It's a word that means when you understand the context of Isaiah, the story of God, that we are coming home out of exile. So I told you earlier that Isaiah is set in a time of exile, being away from Jerusalem or Israel for about 70 years. And so it's also about coming home. This is actually the turning point for us. We realize it's about returning as well. So 70 years in Babylon, exiled, returning after those 70 years. 40 years in the wilderness, wandering to, in search of the promised land. Um, the prodigal son, he's wayward in a far-off foreign land, but he comes home one day. He comes to a census. Even Jesus, if you remember the beginning of his life, nowhere to, you know, no, no room in the inn. No room in the inn. He's in exile. But yet he calls Israel his home. Um, so the Bible is always about exile and coming home which begs the question, what does it mean to come home? Like, if you think about this in your own life, you know that term, a house is not a home. Some of you are, are all too aware of this. You live in, a, in a, an apartment, and it just doesn't, it's not exactly what you hoped for. Um, you've got a house right now, but you're remodeling it. I know some of you are tearing your houses apart right now, and it's like, man, this does not feel like home. Uh, you've just moved into a house like ours, and ceilings are cracked and crumbling, and you know it takes quite a while to make your house into a home. So you have a roof over your head. You have a bed you sleep in. You have a place to fix your meals. But every, unless everything fits and everything's the way you want it, you're not actually home yet. And this is why if some of you travel for work, it wears you down so badly. Though you're sleeping in a bed, you have a roof over your head, you have abundance of places to eat, it's not your bed, it's not your roof, it's not your food. It's not fitting you. It's not home. Home is harbor. It's a place of restoration and... Um, a place that doesn't drain you. It nurses you. It strengthens you. It's the way life should be. And this is why literal homelessness is so brutalizing. Um, To literally be homeless, like sleeping on the street, especially right now, as many people are, under tarps, you know, along the freeway. And uh, that is so destructive for you physically and emotionally. And spiritually, it's because it's not what you were created for. None of us was created for that. And in that way, we're told the Bible, we've all lost our home. And uh, this world is not the place, as Peter says, that God designed for us. It's not our home. And it doesn't fit our deepest desires. We're, we're in exile as God's people, just like Israel was in Isaiah's time. But the pages of the Old Testament, Isaiah 35, just rustle with this promise. The Messiah will come someday and take us home. A highway will be there for the redeemed to walk and return. And, and Isaiah calls this the way of holiness. I don't know if you have a Bible in front of you, but you might have noticed that the way is capitalized. And that's an interesting translation choice uh, because uh, the people of God early in Acts, in Acts 9, Acts 19, Acts 24, they called themselves the people of the way. This is before they call themselves Christians. They were the people of the way. And the reason for that, as most scholars will tell you, is because something central to Jesus' identity. You know, when he says in John chapter 4, or John chapter 14, I am the way. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. And that's a declaration when Jesus gave it that was one of the great thunderbolts of history. Um, 
I mean, he's looking at those to whom he said it. He's looking at you today, to whom he's saying it again. And he's unlike any other teacher who's ever lived. He's unlike me. He's unlike any other religious person who's ever lived. He's saying, not, I've blazed the way. Just follow me there. I'm showing you the way. Let me just spell it out for you. All the steps, the 12 steps, the 30 steps, whatever it is. Just do what I do. I'm pointing the way. That's the way. Uh, You're going to find it if you just live like this. He doesn't do that. He's not a guide. He's not a guru. He's not a map to a better way of life. Jesus says, I am the way. And nobody else had ever said this. So it's not so much that we're homeless and exiled and need to find our own way home. We just need a better map. We just need a better guide, you know, because we can figure it out. We're pretty knowledgeable people. The beauty of Advent and the opportunity for us in this season is to see with fresh eyes that God has become our way, our way home, that God can indeed be your true home, Um, the one in whom everything in your life, everything in you, your identity, your personality, your hopes, fits. They fit in Christ, in whom there's harbor. You don't feel very safe right now. Home, I'm your way. Restoration, you feel like your body is coming apart, like I talked about. You need restoration. You can find strength in him. He's your true home. So the joy of Advent is that we get to welcome Christ as a child into our world, and we get to welcome him into our lives, and he's saying to us as sons and daughters, welcome home. Um, And so my paraphrase of Isaiah 35 this morning, if you feel stuck, like you're in your career, it's dissatisfying, you're in a marriage that's just dry, Um, you're not where you think you need to be financially or in your vocation, you're sick of the political infighting in our country, whatever it is, you're dealing with emotional pain, hear this. You who put your faith in Christ are on the way. So even though you feel like your story's not going anywhere, you feel stuck, you're on the way to Christ. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. He says, no one who comes to the Father except through me can come to the Father. But everyone who comes to him comes to the Father. That means you're coming home in faith. So would you take steps this Advent toward your true home? Just simple steps of faith. And, uh, and the first step we can take this morning is by way of coming to the communion table. I'm really excited, I'll invite our worship team up, that we get to um, begin Advent by taking communion together. And uh, this is a way of stepping toward our, our true home um, by saying to Christ, you died outside the city, you died homeless and alone, um, you had nobody in your life. And you did that for me so that as, in as much as I experienced that in my life, I would not be alone. You, you died with me and for me. You're, that's the death that we all die. And um, he's taken that upon himself. And so we get to receive that this morning and receive everything he has for us beyond that. So let me take a moment to pray and then we'll um, invite you to communion. God, thank you for these great promises um, that we get to meditate on this entire month, these next 24, 25 days. Um, Thank you that though they are far off, um, for many of us we hear about restoration, renewal, return. They feel so distant to us as categories. Um, Thank you that in as much as you're here today with us and we get to 
receive you in this way through communion, they can be true today. So I want to claim these promises for our community this morning, God. Um, I want to claim uh, restoration for those of us who are sick um, and are in pain. Um, I want to claim renewal for our community, God. Would you make things new through this, this time? And God, for, for those of us who feel lost and alone, I want to claim return, God. Would these steps toward this table be uh, steps toward you? We pray this in faith, in Christ's name.